Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd are with me today. We'll speak to Gregor in just a moment. But Alison, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, Natalie. And I'm back playing tennis. So that has uh, improved my mood enormously. Oh, I know. You're a huge tennis fan. You love playing it. Um, What's it been like on the courts then? Has there been lots of people queuing up or how's it worked? It's worked well. You you can't queue up. And that's the point. You have to book online. Everyone's doing it like that. And so you just pay over your laptop. No one has to come and get your money off you. It's a bit weird on the court because um, your ball will occasionally stray onto another court and you hear people shouting don't touch that ball (laughs) it's not clean so you desperately run after your ball and hope that it doesn't touch anybody but apart from that it's 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 just like normal but no doubles anywhere because although you can play doubles if you're a family most most families don't have a whole doubles in them so um it's it's lots of singles and people just looking you know, people smiling more and when you come on court saying, have a lovely game, isn't it great to be back? Mm. People are not taking it for granted, that's for sure. Mm. Apart from those who think you're unclean with your unclean tennis balls. Um, but no, it sounds great that you're able to get back out uh, on the court, that's for sure. Gregor, how are you doing? I'm good, yeah. Along the same theme, I was vaguely considering getting my golf clubs, which have been gathering dust in the in the attic for about the last two years, getting them out just as an excuse to play some sort of sport and to maybe see another human being as well. So I might I might fill you in on how bad or awful my golf game has been in the next next podcast. So have you actually got them down from the loft? Because that's the first step, Gregor. No, I should probably do that first, shouldn't I? But <laughs> I think it's going to happen. The sun's shining and, uh, you know, the, the rules have been relaxed and I think that would be... Although I'm sure there'll be a lot of people thinking the same. Yeah. The funny thing is everyone's now saying, oh, I've got more time to do this, but I'm not doing anything. I'm not still doing know, it yeah. yet. I've just got the time it, to do it. Um, except baking of time, and eating. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm terrible. I keep baking and I, I love it, but um, it's not good for the waistline. Uh, talking of a, a bit of time for reaction, uh, there's been obviously huge news from Scotland where Celtic have been crowned the champions and Hearts, Gregor, of course, have been relegated on an average points per game basis. That was the outcome of the SPFL meeting. What do you make of the decision? I mean, I think the the only safer bet than Celtic win the league in the whole of British football would have been Liverpool winning the league. So I don't think that really anyone could argue with this. I think, you know, there were 13 points clear, eight games left to play, all five of which after the, the planned split. Uh, in April were at home so really anyone who is arguing that this is unfair uh, is probably a Rangers fan uh, for Hearts part I think I think really this is just going to be the beginning of, of what we see in a lot of leagues they've already threatened uh, legal action um, they were four points adrift they've been very poor all season and you know, as we've discussed at length over the last few weeks I think this is just the, the sort of least bad option uh, when fulfilling the fixtures aren't viable as they weren't in Scotland because the teams couldn't really afford to do so um, Hearts had a glimmer of hope about a reconstruction of the league um, and it's, there's still a very faint glimmer of that but it's looking so unlikely there's going to be any support for it so I think Hearts um, who really this should have been a bit of a fairy tale year for them they, they have basically Passing into fan ownership, or they should have, uh, 
this season after Anne Budge uh, bought the club and then and then the, the supporters, the Hearts Foundation, paid money back over over a period of years. Uh, and this was the, the moment they're supposed to become supporter-owned and it's really it's a terrible end to, to what should have been a bit of a fairy tale story for them. Just very quickly and lastly on it, the, the statement said this was a unanimous decision. Uh, if you take it as read, does that surprise you that all the teams back this proposal in the end? Um, I mean, Rangers really were the only sort of dissenting voice, but I think they they must have been just resigned to the fact that this is what has to happen. As we've we've seen over the last week or so, the the costs involved with with uh, with arranging the games and making them safe to play in is just there was no way in in the world that that could happen in Scotland. Just as there's no way in the world, really realistically, that's going to be able to happen in League One or League Two. So. Um, I think probably they were just resigned to the fact that every other club wants to draw a line under the under the under the matter and and importantly get the release of the kind of prize funds, which is going to it's going to be very important for them to survive over the summer, and then they can focus their attention on when uh, they might be able to start next season, which is obviously still hugely uh, uncertain. Well, for the time being, there is no football in Scotland. But coming up, football is back, albeit on the continent. But did we enjoy it? We're heading back to the 1991 FA Cup final. And there's another round of unpopular football opinions. And this one could trump Jonathan Northcroft's balmy overachieving England team opinion. All that to come after this. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Now, big news over the weekend. Football is back and it's the Bundesliga that we have all been watching. Germany became the first major European league to return since football was suspended because of the coronavirus pandemic, with six fixtures on Saturday and a further two on Sunday. Now, it received a mixed reception, with many encouraged by the players still able to play at a high tempo and intensity, but also unable to escape the odd atmosphere left, of course, without supporters. But after seeing what we have seen over the weekend, how did we feel about the return of football, Alison? Well, it's it's hard. What you've got to try and do is balance how you'd have felt watching the Bundesliga if everything was normal. And uh, <laughs> the truth is, I wouldn't have watched very much of it. Mm. So it's not normal for me to sit down and watch the whole of Union Berlin versus Bayern Munich. I just wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I can't um, believe that's not in your diary. <laughs> I'd have been playing tennis, Natalie. So <laughs> that was um, that was in a way. Oh, it's kind of weird. I was kind of glad I watched it because I wouldn't have. So I'm happy that this has made me watch football. I wouldn't have. I just wouldn't watch much Bundesliga, and um, it was technically good. And I realised I knew all the players. And why aren't I watching them more often? 
you know, out of out of European competition. So, Alison, when you look back then at the weekend, what do you take away as perhaps the, the oddest element to this weekend of Bundesliga action? Well, I think it's hard, even if you <laughs> even if you think you can. It's one of those things. I thought I could handle there being no fans, and I was really concentrating on the uh, technical ability on show. I watched all of Union Berlin versus Bayern Munich, and there was lots of good football. And I did think I can just concentrate on this. I can just just focus on the fact that it's live football, and I do not know what's going to happen. This is this is an absolute treat. It's back. I do not need to be bothered about the fact there are no fans there. Uh, you know, only wimps need fans, sort of thing. <laughs> but actually, every time the manager, sort of his echoing voice, rebounded across the empty stands, it was a reminder every time that it wasn't quite right. And I'd done a bit of reading up on Union Berlin and it just made me feel a bit sad because they're a club that rely on their fans more than any other in the world, it seems, in the sense that the fans keep the club alive. They don't have music at their stadium because their fans are too noisy and just so vociferous in their backing. Their fans literally sell their blood and get money and then give that money to the club to make sure it can stay in business. And their performance, Union's performance, was one that, oh my goodness, you could tell if they had that sort of backing against, as underdogs against the the team going for their eighth title in a row, you know, overwhelming favourites to win, that they might have, they, they played well, but they just might have done something that bit, with a bit more urgency or frightened Bayern a bit, because Bayern did, did not look particularly like they got out of third gear. Because there wasn't that adrenaline around, so I think what the pro- I think overall, I think the problem is going to be with even though you try really, really hard not to make it always about there being no fans, the the interaction and the noise and the ambiance, your brain will continually go beep, beep, beep. What's wrong? Because it's not what you're used to. Mm. It's interesting because I, I watched a few of the games as well, and and I did find myself zoning out easily or easier than if I've been watching maybe a maybe a Premier League game, maybe that's to do with the fans, I don't know, or if it's maybe because I don't have a direct affiliation with Bundesliga teams. But, Gregor, you, you watched some of the action as well. What did you make of it all? No, I agree. I think it's... it's you know, there were people who were really trying to hype this up and adopting German teams and all sorts of things like that. And that's not really... That's not really something I, I could sort of uh, find any affinity with. I think... I agree with Alison. You, you try and co- you, you try and focus on the football, but you realise how important everything that surrounds it is, and you know the passion, the 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 tribalism, the the noise. Obviously, um, the absence of those things just sort of seems to to me to render it all uh, less important. And part, I think, possibly some 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 of that's to do with the, the reasons for it. Obviously, and the fact that we're in the, the midst of a a global uh, pandemic and crisis. Just football, it just all seemed less important to me. And it also made you sort of one realise essentially what the, why, why, why it was happening, which is its return is basically a means of survival rather than sort of a desperate, I mean, I, I'm glad football's back and I'm glad it's great to watch a game, but the reason it's back is because the clubs need the money to survive, and that's perfectly that's that's perfectly fine and per- and like completely valid. It's an industry that needs to 
needs to sustain itself in some way, and this might be the future for it going forward, but it just all felt uh, less important. It also made me realise that when trophies are, are won and, and uh, titles are decided upon, they are going to feel so empty and hollow. And, and I'm sorry to say to Alison as well, that, that will include Liverpool, despite what's gone before. They might only have to win two games. That you know Their celebrations will be completely non-existent. Um, this has scarred scarred the season sort of irreparably, and it's uh, it's very sad, really. Mm. Well, before the game, strict measures were put in place in Germany. Only around three hundred people were allowed into each stadium. Temperatures were taken, and masks had to be worn. Forms had to be filled in with questions about recent symptoms. Uh, Eintracht Frankfurt decided to test transponders as tracking devices. Around 30 people were asked to wear them to track their movement and alerting them if they came too close to another carrier. And then on the pitch, the strangest situation for the onlooking fan was to see substitutes sat far apart from each other on the bench with all players wearing masks. Uh, Players were not hesitant to engage in physical duels or getting close to each other in the moments before a corner kick. But after a goal, the players were asked to keep a distance to celebrate, but players didn't social distance when they actually were celebrating. I certainly spotted an elbow pump or two. Uh, One concern was also that home fans could gather outside the stadium, but the police reported no major issues helped by the fact that games were screened in bars that have begun to reopen across the country with social distancing. Now, we know here in England that Project Restart perhaps is officially a step closer with all Premier League clubs now agreeing to return to small group training this week. From what we've seen, though, in action at the Bundesliga. Alison, what lessons do you think can be learnt for the Premier League? Well, I think probably first off, and this picks up on what Gregor was saying, the players, I mean, I feel sad for them in a way, but they are they are sort of acting as role models as well as entertainers. And it is silly, if you think about it, to not be allowed to celebrate when you're allowed to tackle because... You're just as close. It's about, but it's about that messaging that goes out. So every time a player remembers to socially distance themselves from a teammate when he scored, they're reminding the whole of you know the whole world watching that we're trying to behave differently these days to stop the spread of a virus. So that that I think will become more like second nature possibly I'm stretching it probably won't ever but I think they'll get more used to that the players and in a way that might be one moral reason for bringing football back that you know life goes on but at a slightly different pace and in a different way so I think I think as the players get used to it that'll be good I don't I don't want to see fake fans or fake crowd noise though that I think that might make my brain explode because there's okay. no way, there's no way it could properly fit. I mean, the reason, Natalie, you said you were zoning out occasionally, didn't you? Mm, yeah. The reason you were zoning out is because when you watch football, you, you're you not just watching it, you're, all your senses are involved. So you yeah. when you hear the crowd get get a bit noisier, you, you know something might happen and you have to put down your phone and make sure you concentrate. Mm-hmm. The, the crowd inform you as the watcher, as the viewer, when to be alert and then when to ebb away. And if you haven't got those signals, then you you might lose concentration, especially if it's not a game that you're particularly into. But I, I don't like do not like the idea of somebody on a machine faking crowd noise to make you and me feel more alert 
I'll feel manipulated and it'll feel like Big Brother. I won't like that at all. Mm. Uh, they they have been suggested, of course, the use of crowd noise pumped into a stadium or even fake fans, cardboard cutouts. Um, Gregor, what do you think could help to make the experience better for everyone? I mean, I really I, I agree with Alison. I'm very sceptical about all those things. I feel that we will just kind of gradually uh, become accustomed to what is going to be the norm probably for some months to come uh hopefully not much longer than that but we don't know um but I, just coming back to i think you know the, i think if we're being completely honest we re- almost realize that the football for a lot of people is almost secondary it's actually about the ritual of going to the game and the sort of as i said the, the community and the passion and 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 the sensory experience and, and everything that goes along with with being at a football match and obviously winning and losing and, and the, the kind of the desire to succeed. But actually, for a lot of people, what is going on in the pitch, and this is not everyone, but what is going on in the pitch is is not as important as you kind of realise. And actually, you know, I, when, when I look, I was thinking back to when I was a player and I think... I think actually it was it's the it was the emotions of that playing football made me feel that is what made me really love it rather than the act of playing football. I know that sounds really strange. That will sound bizarre. And there are a lot of people who feel differently about this. Possibly people who are more skillful than me. But <laughs> I think it's the competition. It's the it's the kind of drawing every last sort of bit of fight out of yourself and. And the camaraderie and the, the team spirit and the, the feeling when you've won and the feeling when you've lost and all of those things actually are, they were more important to me than, uh, that's the things I miss most as well afterwards, after hanging up my boots, than the act of playing football, the tactical or technical aspects of playing football. And I think this is this is kind of almost reaffirmed that to me and I think it probably will make a lot of people realise, you know, with the same things about being a supporter or being a fan. Not everyone. I, I think it's almost drawn a line. There are people who are completely absorbed in the in the tactics of football and they can they can almost block all that out and watch the watch the game on the T V and, and analyse the the quality of the football. And I love to do that as well, but I it doesn't feel the same for me without all the rest around it. Just very quickly, did either of you I know Gregor you mentioned it, but did either of you pick a, a Bundesliga team to support, Gregor? <laughs> no. Sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't down with that. That's, no, I wasn't no, down with that's that. I like to watch. There's individual players. I'd be loving to watch, like Lewandowski and Haaland. It's just a kind of your eyes widen every time you see him get on the football. Uh, Thiago, players like that, you know. But I'm sorry, there's not a team. I'm not going to adopt a team for a few weeks because I'm hoping that there's. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping there's going to be football that I have some affinity with that comes back yeah. in the future. Alison, did you pick a team by any chance? Uh, not seriously, but I did just before lockdown. I went to Leipzig to watch them destroy Spurs, and they were so entertaining, if slightly flaky as well. That um, if I do tune in to watch them, I'll probably root for them. Yes, but I'm not adopting anybody. Yes. Not not at this no, age no. in life. No, too old no, to adopt. No, no. We wouldn't. <laughs> We wouldn't advocate having two teams, Alison, but just for this little window of just Bundesliga action. I, by the way, do actually support Schalke right now. So of all the teams to have picked, I picked the team that got hammered <laughs> 4-0 by Borussia Dortmund. The reason I picked Schalke, I should say, is one of uh, Brentford's, well, a former player of Brentford, 
started at Schalke. They were also linked to a player that we ended up signing in the summer. So there were lots of links. I thought, well, I'll go with Schalke. I might be regretting that one. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Our resident referee here on the game podcast, Alison Rudd, has been re-watching the 1991 FA Cup final with Premier League ref Chris Kavanagh. Now, the fouls were certainly flying in during Tottenham's victory over Nottingham Forest, and Chris critiques referee Roger Milford's performance and how the game has changed in nearly 30 years. The final is remembered for two horrendous fouls committed by Paul Gascoigne, the second of which damaged the England midfielder's right knee, so that by the time Spurs lifted the trophy, he was actually in hospital. Now, Alison, I can imagine this would have been quite a fascinating watch. Does rewatching it make you thankful for our modern-day refs? It was, I'll tell you what, it was much more interesting and much more fun than I was expecting it to be. I mean, we had a, we had, honestly, I, feel, I know I feel Chris Cavan is my best mate. We had such a laugh watching it. It was, <laughs> and it was, he, the things he found strange were, as you can expect, and his, it's his full-time career. It's his profession. He is devoted to the art of refereeing. And he kept gasping at not only the appalling fouls, but the fact that nobody seemed to mind and that the referee was never harassed or harangued. Players never ran in to say, what about that ref? Did you not see that? There was none of that at all. It was it was very peculiar. Referees' positioning has changed phenomenally. I wouldn't have picked that up, actually, because um, we were just watching it on DVD and I wasn't there. But uh, the referee was never, rarely where he would be today. So uh, even in 91, they, they had a very on the whole, very bad view of the game. They, 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 they often were off the pitch, on the, off the goal line. And you'd, go, you'd be going, Chris would be going, why are they there? They're not supposed to be there. And, um, and it did my head in a bit, Natalie, because it was so poorly refereed, the 91 Cup final, that you would 
it's impossible not to say that VAR would have been amazing because all for all the reasons that the decisions were wrong, having someone else assessing it away from Wembley would have been great. And even if you'd been allowed to say to Roger Milford, the referee, look, how about how about you just calm down, forget the sense of occasion, just go and have another look at that, then you know, well, he might have saved Gascoigne's um, career, I suppose, because he he, um, he suffered a very bad injury in that game. Wow. So it's yeah, that, that's partly why I did my head in because it was, I, I'm really anti-VAR. But the, but the reason I'm anti-VAR is I think referees have improved so much since '91 uh, that they that they they can be trusted to do more than um, the VAR now imposes on them. It's almost like we've had VAR in reverse. It was needed when referees were rubbish and it's not as needed now that the people that you put in charge on a pitch are actually actually doing an OK job. Mm. Uh, presumably, um, forgive me for asking this question, Roger Milford would have been one of the best refs in England at the time, wouldn't he? Ah, well, I, I don't... Yeah, well, this is part of the problem, I think, because I think there was a trend... And I don't know if this was specifically the case for Roger Wilford, but it's definitely a trend that they used to give showpiece events to referees as a reward for long service, right. as opposed to it being them being the best person for the job in that week. And the the other FA Cup final, which has been re-refereed a lot, is the 1971, um, you know, Chopper Harris and so on. Um where I don't think that game, if it had been played today, that it wouldn't have been allowed to continue because there'd be too many players not on the pitch having been sent off. But the referee in that game was Eric Jennings, and he was definitely given that as a thank you for services rendered. And he wasn't coming back. It was his last right. his last act. So he he just made the decision because there, no, there were no repercussions for him. He just made the decision, I'm going to have a laugh, I'm going to have a good time, I'm going to let the football flow, I don't care how many people are injured. So it's, I don't think you can just automatically say, oh, he was the best. I think, I think they were more romantic about the way they appointed in those days. Well, Milford awarded just one booking on the day, yet Chris Kavanagh insists even erring on the side of leniency, he would have awarded four red cards and 11 yellows had he been officiating in 1991. But under today's rules, the red for Gary Lineker's penalty would have been downgraded to a yellow. Um, Gregor, when you think about refereeing, do you think the biggest change in the last 30 years has, has been the leniency on fouls and how we've how that has altered over time? Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a uh, that intertwines a little bit with the, with changes in the rules and you could argue like the the back pass rule in 1982 was pretty big, but in terms of the way that the rules are interpreted as well by referees, and um, it's transformed the way a team's best players can express themselves and flourish. Really, I think um, I, I have to say though, <laughs> put him as a defender, I'm biased probably, but you know, I do. I, I sometimes wonder whether it's gone a little bit too far the other in the other direction now. Um, whether we're too protective, whether some tackles that are deemed reckless uh, would be impossible to make in 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 any other way, and and there's a lot of people who who are happy, who are fine with that, would say don't make the tackle, and you should be able to, I don't know, position yourself better and, and things like that. But 
I, I still think tackling is one of the most kind of satisfying. Um, I don't know, representative of how competitive football is, um, especially oh, especially it has been in 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 the UK over the years, and and I still think it's one of the most kind of rewarding things certainly to do in a game and 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 to see and it's um so i you know i undoubtedly this has improved the game and and if to watch games like that and alison mentioned alison and, and rick wrote a piece about the the 1970 cup final uh, a few weeks back which was excellent as well and um you know of, of course it's come come miles since then uh and that's to the benefit of the game but i i personally with with my defender's hat on I would question whether perhaps we've gone slightly too far now. Mm. It's interesting piece that, that you've written with Chris Kavanagh because he also discusses how factors in making a decision include the enormity of the occasion of an FA Cup final, the stage of a game, for example, the first 10 minutes and how a player may well be nervous and also the effort to keep a star player like Paul Gascoigne on the pitch. So, Alison, do we agree that there's more than simply giving what you see as a referee? Yeah, and I don't think um, I don't think referees can win on this because if uh, Milford had sent off Gaza after forty three seconds, he'd have been lambasted as as the man who ruined the cup final and spo- spoiled the very reason most people were tuning in. Gaza having become a, a household name after uh, Italian ninety. So, you, as as a referee, as Chris Kavanagh pointed out, you you and, and in fact, any referee I've spoken to who've been involved in a big match, i.e., big because there'll be you know millions tuning in. There's a lot of people invested in the game. You do not want to ruin the occasion by being too strict, too disciplinarian early in the game. And that and somehow you have to balance that with knowing that a red is a red and a yellow is a yellow. And you you mustn't let that sense of occasion go too far. And it's clearly did in the ninety one final, but the referee just decided he didn't he just didn't want that responsibility. He just didn't want to have to send anyone off but it has repercussions you see because from that moment on it made the referee's life very difficult so he couldn't he couldn't give he couldn't then give any yellow cards because the yellow cards he should have given if if he was going to be consistent were not (laughs) didn't have any relationship with the red card he didn't give so everything went up like 20 notches in terms of what you can and can't do. So you have a lot to manage as as the referee and you have to set the tone. And I think it's probably, we're probably being slightly unfair on Milford because, um, you know, as as Kavanagh pointed out, that, that challenge was one you only see once a season. And, and yet you get it in the opening seconds of the FA Cup final. It's so hard to deal with, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. So, Gregor, when you think about the state of refereeing now, where do you think it's going to end up in in thirty years' time? <laughs> well, after just saying that, I hope uh, <laughs> there's the protectionism of uh, of players kind of halts here. I'm hoping that that's the case because, as I say, I think that um, tackling and and the combative side of of football is part of what makes it such a a thrilling spectacle. Um, but I wouldn't be I wouldn't hold out too much confidence about that. To be brutally honest, I think that. Um, the direction of travel is 
harsher sort of penalising of players and fouls and more yellow cards and um, and then obviously you come onto technology and I think probably what happens in the next two or three years how much we kind of fine tune and hone the introduction of VAR will probably determine uh, how much how much kind of further it goes because you know it's been a it's been a rocky start this season. You know it's easy to it's easy to you know we've we've, we've missed football but VAR has um, VAR has certainly had a, a controversial uh, opening season and. I think it does. It does need some fine tuning in the way that um, the way that it's applied and when it's applied. So I, I hope that happens. Um, otherwise, you know, as we say, we've, we've spoken about this over the course of the season that you kind of lose the emotion and it also um, detracts from the spectacle. And when when supporters and people inside the stadium, although there's none at the moment, uh, have no idea what's going on, uh, and even the viewers at home are kind of looking at what what's almost looks like a computer game. Uh, on the screen, so uh, I think that what happens in the next couple of years will will determine how far, how much further we go with the use of technology. And Alison, as the biggest advocate of VAR, <laughs> what do you do? You see, <laughs> do you see that we will have more video referees? Are you even concerned that we may eventually remove the human in the middle altogether? No, I. I mean, I did write a dystopia saying we would, but actually, I think there's been such a backlash against VAR that weirdly even though VAR is a referee and is a human being that people seem to think it's not um true it there's been such a backlash that I think the referees as humans as people in the middle of the pitch have become more valued everything goes in cycles so I think we'll move to a situation where we get technology support but we rely a bit more on the intuition on the trained person who's actually in the middle of the frenetic action to to give us the right decisions. Uh, so I, I, in a way, I think maybe in 30 years' time, which is what you were talking about, we might look back on this period of football and decide that it was right for us to suffer VAR and to um, realise its flaws and that it doesn't make everything perfect far from it and then therefore once you accept that you go back to human decision making and you you learn to embrace it and love it that's what i that's what i hope will be the ultimate impact of var over 30 years and just lastly before we move on to your unpopular football opinion alison you mentioned there uh, that there was no haranguing of the ref in this 1991 final um why has that changed do you think what what has gone on in refereeing that has now led to players circling them more and more on the pitch? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, it, it would have been incremental. It wouldn't have happened overnight. I suspect as football just got more about the money and outcomes were just more urgent and managers became more savvy they will have started to say to their players, look, you know, you could actually you could actually influence the referee here if you had a word. And then once that was seen to have happened, it sort of grew exponentially. And before you know it, everyone thinks they have a route to the referee's head. So it would have just been a a gradual a gradual thing. You know, it works works in one televised match. The manager sees it and then says, Right, we're gonna do that, lads, next time and, and so it grows. 
Also, I think, um, you, you, well, you would think that perhaps the <laughs> after watching this opening weekend of the Bundesliga, it's it's it still happened. Certainly in the bits of action I saw, there were still players surrounding the referee, and and um, it seems a bit farcical when they're not allowed to celebrate together. Absolutely. Okay, do you know what? Before we end, it is time to ask Alison to play our new game. Of course, Alison, you like to come up with your own games, but this is our one. This is the (laughs) unpopular football opinions game. Uh, It all started when Jonathan Northcroft declared on the game podcast that England have overachieved as a football nation, given their lack of talent pool. Gregor then decided to twist the knife and added that England haven't produced a top manager since Sir Bobby Robson. Uh, Then came Tom Roddy, who insists there is nothing wrong with half and half scarves, before Henry Winter concluded that he hates Wembley Stadium and wants England back on tour around the country. So before we hear your unpopular opinion, Alison, does any of those stand out for you that you would agree Agree with Alison? Uh, I, I get why Henry hates Wembley, but I'd still rather have a national stadium and a place where people dream of ending up if they reach the final of something. Um, I'd wish Wembley was uh, more accessible and more beautiful and had cheaper pizza. But I still, <laughs> I still, I still like the fact we have Wembley. But I, but I do, I just, I suppose that's the one I have most. Half and half scarves. I mean, how, how did how did he leave his house alive with that one? I mean, <laughs> what a ridiculous idea. Uh, wow. Gregor, um, I think I would equate Terry Venables on, alongside Bobby Robson, Gregor. I wouldn't say he's better, but I would equate them. And uh, Johnny Northcroft's just taking the mickey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he certainly is. And I think the reason that Tom Roddy was able to say what he said was uh, was because we're in lockdown. So he knew he was safe. That's why he was able to <laughs> go for that one. So come on then, Alison. Hit us with your unpopular football opinion. We're both ready. Come on. What is it? Uh, Paul Gascoigne is the most overrated footballer <gasps> in my lifetime. <laughs> I thought ours were bad. <gasps> <laughs> wow. Okay, but c- come on, give us a bit more because you know everyone. Everyone talks about the genius of Paul Gascoigne. I don't know mass hysteria. Uh, once one person that you admire says it, everyone feels they've got to copy it. Basically, if you analyse his career, I, I will. I will grant that he had um, reasonable close control and a natural reasonable close control <laughs> and, a, and, and a natural understanding of the ebbs and flows of the game. But most of his sort of eye-catch, most, the vast majority of his eye-catching goals and dribbles came across, came against lower-class opposition. He was a flat-track bully. He did, he, did not, he did not turn it on much. Basically, if you look at any player and look at their personal honours compared to their club honours, there's a huge, huge imbalance there. I mean, Paul Gascoigne, he won... BBC Sports Personality of the Year because he burst into tears because he was good. I mean, any, get a grip. If you think that means he's a hero, what what are you looking for in this world? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if he cried because because the mascot fell over and hurt his head and he was really upset on so- someone else's behalf. He was crying for himself. And also, <laughs> I have no no time at all for self-destructive players. Uh, that has just watched again, as you know, the 91 Cup final. His his behaviour in that was abominable. And if it had been, if it had been a, a foreigner, we'd have all been saying, absolute disgrace. We don't want that. We don't want to see that sort of aggression 
on the football field. It was it was infantile and nasty and dangerous. I just and you know that's the only honour he's got is winning the FA Cup final in England is winning the FA Cup final and he, they won it when he was in hospital they won it and as Chris Kavanagh pointed out watching it as soon as he left the pitch because he was he injured himself um, the game improved hugely and um, Spurs began to pass the ball as a team and Forrest didn't have to worry about trying to tackle Gaza it, it, the game was all about Gaza. And then when he was off the pitch, the level of football improved and Spurs looked like a proper unit. A moderately interesting player, but a cult, a cult has been built around him, which is, is, is undeserving. I am in shock. Now, Gregor, let's take away Scotland. Let's take away England. Let's take away Rangers and Celtic. Let's just view Paul Gascoigne as Paul Gascoigne, the player. Do you in any way agree with what Alison is saying? Or are you actually think, sticking up for Gazza and saying, no, he was that incredible player that most people wax lyrical about? <laughs> Can I just say, first of all, that it's, I know lockdown must be doing strange things to the game podcast because we seem to be every week dismantling the sort of English footballing identity step by step. <laughs> just you wait. Wembley. You start, Gaza. you start turning on Bulgaria, <laughs> then I am walking away. <laughs> Yeah, you are, you are really struggling when you're asking a, a Scottish uh, Celtic supporter to defend Paul Gascoigne. But uh, I will say that in the three years he was at Rangers, he was he was magnificent to watch. I saw him a couple of times live in Old Firm games. Um, and, you know, Alison might be right when she argues that he would have been playing against lesser opposition then. Um, but... Uh, one of the one of the best one of the kind of most attractive and admirable kind of traits in a in a footballer is is balance and Gaza had that kind of balance and poise and ability to surge forward with the ball at his feet um, that really kind of I don't know it put it put him up there with 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 some of the best players of his generation I think best midfielder of his generation certainly um, and. Rangers fans, I'm sure, will certainly be will be getting in touch with Alison after this here and that because he was he was absolutely loved and adored uh, during his time in Scotland, and I well I agree with Alison with some of the reasons for his sort of deification or whatever you would want to call it. <laughs> it's probably because of that moment, and that there's not much logic to that. But um, he was a he was a fantastic player, so I think I um, I probably do have to defend Paul Gascoigne, although I never thought I would hear myself saying those words. <laughs> You do. But Alison, was, was he not pivotal in, in helping England to the World Cup semi-finals at Italia 90? How can you also forget that goal against Scotland at Euro 96? Sorry, Greg. It was Scotland, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> right, can we, can we hang up on Alison there? <laughs> but, but there are so many people that, that say we are missing a Paul Gascoigne of today's generation of footballers that he was that complete footballer that he was it was all natural that it wasn't something that was coached into him it was it was just something that he had yeah well he had he had some talent and he wasted it he, I, do, I, I don't I, I see no fairy tale with Paul Gascoigne at all and I'm not touching upon his demons and his alcoholism and the problems he's had that isn't the point of my argument whilst he was a fully functioning professional footballer he, I think he was lauded too soon, perhaps. But it, it, 
I just think if you're looking that sort of player who can who can who does have nice balance and can sashay around a defender you see it once and you for some reason because we don't tend to produce that kind of player perhaps we just we just built him into something very special completely out of proportion from what he was capable of doing he never once well you're saying rangers loved him but in his as a player in England, he never once really lifted a team. And I, when I watched him, he was often the liability for the, the reasons I outlined that were um, very all too evident in the 91 Cup final. You, you need a balance with a player. You really do. And, to, and today, even with foreign players who have the, those sorts of skills in abundance, we worry about their ability to, tra- to track back and what they give to the team. There's no point being able to beat a poor defender or old centre back unless you can you can contribute regularly all over the pitch. And that's and I really don't like the idea of a player that would occasionally shine. He had lots and lots of matches where he was very ordinary. Great players do it all the time. I mean, I can't, I'm struggling to think of anything he did against top notch opposition that made me think, wow. I'm privileged to be able to watch this. What did he do? He won the FA Youth Cup for Spurs. Football League <laughs> Cup runner-up. I mean, what, what, what's he done? What's he done? Nothing. I think Alison wins the, the Unpopular Opinion Award. <laughs> do you know what? I was about to say, I think the sun's been in her eyes too much since she's re-taken re- up tennis. Uh, maybe that's where she's been blinded by it all. But you're quite right, Gregor. I think I think that wins the gold medal so far for the most unpopular football opinion. But let me just say thank you to you both, Gregor, and to you, Alison, as, re- as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Thursday on The Game podcast. Stay safe in the meantime. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphones